Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection by Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Your reader, Michael Armenta. Chapter 8 Instinct. Instincts comparable with habits, but different in their origin. Instincts graduated. Aphides and ants, instincts variable, domestic instincts, their origin, natural instincts of the cuckoo, molothrus, ostrich, and parasitic bees, slave-making ants, hive-bee, its cell-making instinct, changes of instinct and structure not necessarily simultaneous, difficulties of the theory of the natural selection of instincts, neuter or sterile insects, summary. Many instincts are so wonderful that their development will probably appear to the reader a difficulty insufficient to overthrow my whole theory. I may here premise that I have nothing to do with the origin of the mental powers any more than I have with that of life itself. We are concerned only with the diversities of instincts and of the other mental faculties in animals of the same class. I will not attempt any definition of instinct. It would be easy to show that several distinct mental actions are commonly embraced by this term, but everyone understands what is meant when it is said that instincts impels the cuckoo to migrate and to lay her eggs in others' birds' nests, an action which we ourselves require experience to enable us to perform when performed by an animal, more especially by a very young one, without experience, and when performed by many individuals in the same way without their knowing for what purpose it is performed, is usually said to be instinctive, but I could show that none of these characters are universal. A little dose of judgment or reason, as Pierre Huber expresses it, often comes into play, even with animals low in the scale of nature. Frederick Cuvier and several of the older metaphysicians have compared instinct with habit, this comparison gives, I think, an accurate notion of the frame of mind under which an instinctive action is performed, but not necessarily of its origin. How unconsciously many habitual actions are performed, indeed not rarely in direct opposition to our conscious will, yet they may be modified by the will or reason. Habits easily become associated with other habits, with certain periods of time and states of the body, when once acquired, they often remain constant throughout life. Several other points of resemblance between instincts and habits could be pointed out. As in repeating a well-known song, so in instincts, one action follows another by a sort of rhythm. If a person be interrupted in a song, or in repeating anything by rote, he is generally forced to go back to recover the habitual train of thought. So P. Huber found it was with a caterpillar which makes a very complicated hammock, for if he took a caterpillar which had completed its hammock up to, say, the sixth stage of construction, and put it into a hammock completed up only to the third stage, the caterpillar simply re-performed the fourth, fifth, and sixth degrees of construction. If, however, a caterpillar was taken out of a hammock, made up, for instance, to the third stage, and were put up into one finished up to the sixth stage, so that much of its work was already done for it, far from deriving any benefit from this, it was much embarrassed, and in order to complete its hammock, seemed forced to start from the third stage where it had left off, 
and thus try to complete the already finished work if we suppose any habitual action to become inherited and it can be shown that this does sometimes happen then the resemblance between what originally was a habit and an instinct becomes so close as not to be distinguished if mozart instead of playing the pianoforte at three years old with wonderfully little practice had played a tune with no practice at all he might truly be said to have done so instinctively but it would be a serious error to suppose that the greater number of instincts have been acquired by habit in one generation and then transmitted by inheritance to succeeding generations it can be clearly shown that the most wonderful instincts with which we are acquainted namely those of the hive bee and of many ants could not possibly have been acquired by habit it will be universally admitted that instincts are as important as corporeal structures for the welfare of each species under its present conditions of life under changed conditions of life it is at least possible that slight modification of instinct might be profitable to a species and if it can be shown that instincts do vary ever so little then i can see no difficulty in natural selection preserving and continually accumulating variations of instinct to any extent that was profitable that all the most complex and wonderful instincts have originated as modifications of corporeal structure arise from and are increased by use or habit and are diminished or lost by disuse so i do not doubt it has been with instincts but i believe that the effects of habit are in many cases of subordinate importance to the effects of the natural selection of what may be called spontaneous variations of instincts that is of variations produced by the same unknown causes which produce slight deviations of bodily structure no complex instinct can possibly be produced through natural selection except by the slow and gradual accumulation of numerous slight yet profitable variations hence as in the case of corporeal structures we ought to find in nature not the actual transitional gradations by which each complex instinct has been acquired for these could be found only in the lineal ancestors of each species but we ought to find in the collateral lines of descent some evidence of such gradations or we ought at least to be able to show that gradations of some kind are possible and this we certainly can do i have been surprised to find making allowance for the instincts of animals having been but little observed except in europe and north america and for no instinct being known among extinct species how very generally gradations leading to the most complex instincts can be discovered changes of instinct may sometimes be facilitated by the same species having different instincts at different periods of life or at different seasons of the year or when placed under different circumstances etc in which case either the one or the other instinct might be preserved by natural selection and such instances of diversity of instinct in the same species can be shown to occur in nature again as in the case of corporeal structure and conformably to my theory the instinct of each species is good for itself but has never as far as we can judge been produced for the exclusive good of others one of the strongest instances of an animal apparently performing an action for the sole good of another with which i am acquainted is that of aphides voluntarily yielding as was first observed by huber their sweet excretion to ants 
that they do so voluntarily the following facts show i removed all the ants from a group of about a dozen aphides on a dock plant and prevented their attendance during several hours after this interval i felt sure that the aphides would want to excrete i watched them for some time through a lens but not one excreted i then tickled and stroked them with a hair in the same manner as well as i could as the ants do with their antenna but not one excreted afterwards i allowed an ant to visit them and it immediately seemed by its eager way of running about to be well aware what a rich flock it had discovered then began to play with its antenna on the abdomen first of one aphis and then of another and each as soon as it felt the antenna immediately lifted up its abdomen and excreted a limpid drop of sweet juice which was eagerly devoured by the ant even the quite young aphides behaved in this manner showing that the action was instinctive and not the result of experience it is certain from the observations of huber that the aphides show no dislike to the ants if the latter be not present they are at last compelled to eject their excretion but as the excretion is extremely viscid it is no doubt a convenience to the aphides to have it removed therefore probably they do not excrete solely for the good of the ants although there is no evidence that any animal performs an action for the exclusive good of another species yet each tries to take advantage of the instincts of others as each takes advantage of the weaker bodily structure of other species so again certain instincts cannot be considered as absolutely perfect but as details on this and other such points are not indispensable they may be here passed over as some degree of variation in instincts under a state of nature and the inheritance of such variations are indispensable for the action of natural selection as many instances as possible ought to be given but want of space prevents me i can only assert that instincts certainly do vary for instance the migratory instinct both in extent and direction and in its total loss so it is with the nests of birds which vary partly in dependence on the situations chosen and on the nature and temperature of the country inhabited but often from causes wholly unknown to us audubon has given several remarkable cases of differences in the nests of the same species in the northern and southern united states why it has been asked if instinct be variable has it not granted to the bee quote, the ability to use some other material when wax was deficient but what other natural material could bees use they will work as i have seen with wax hardened with vermilion or softened with lard andrew knight observed that his bees instead of laboriously collecting propolis used a cement of wax and turpentine with which he had covered decorticated trees it has lately been shown that bees instead of searching for pollen will gladly use a very different substance namely oatmeal fear of any particular enemy is certainly an instinctive quality as may be seen in nestling birds though it is strengthened by experience fear of any particular enemy is certainly an instinctive quality as may be seen in nestling birds though it is strengthened by experience and by the sight of fear of the same enemy in other animals the fear of man is slowly acquired as i have elsewhere shown 
by the various animals which inhabit desert islands, and we see an instance of this, even in England, in the greater wildness of all our large birds in comparison with our small birds, for the large birds have been most persecuted by man. We may safely attribute the greater wildness of our large birds to this cause, for in uninhabited islands large birds are not more fearful than small, and the magpie, so wary in England, is tame in Norway, as is the hooded crow in Egypt. That the mental qualities of animals of the same kind, born in a state of nature, vary much, could be shown by many facts. Several cases could also be adduced of occasional and strange habits in wild animals, which, if advantageous to the species, might have given rise, through natural selection, to new instincts. But I am well aware that these general statements, without the facts in detail, can produce but a feeble effect on the reader's mind. I can only repeat my assurance that I do not speak without good evidence. Inherited Changes of Habit or Instinct in Domesticated Animals the possibility, or even probability, of inherited variations of instinct in a state of nature will be strengthened by briefly considering a few cases under domestication. We shall thus be enabled to see the part which habit, and the selection of so-called spontaneous variations, have played in modifying the mental qualities of our domestic animals. It is notorious how much domestic animals vary in their mental qualities. With cats, for instance. One naturally takes to catching rats, and another mice, and these tendencies are known to be inherited. One cat, according to Mr. St. John, always brought home game birds, another hares or rabbits, and another hunted on marshy ground, and almost nightly caught woodcocks or snipes. A number of curious and authentic instances could be given of various shades of disposition and taste, and likewise of the oddest tricks associated with certain frames of mind or periods of time. But let us look to the familiar case of the breeds of dogs. It cannot be doubted that young pointers, I myself have seen striking instances, will sometimes point and even back other dogs the first time that they are taken out. Retrieving is certainly in some degree inherited by retrievers, and a tendency to run around instead of at a flock of sheep by shepherd dogs. I cannot see that these actions performed without experience for the young, and in nearly the same manner by each individual, performed with eager delight by each breed, and without the end being known, for the young pointer can no more know that he points to aid his master, than the white butterfly knows why she lays her eggs on the leaf of the cabbage. I cannot see that these actions differ essentially from true instincts. If we were to behold one kind of wolf— when young and without any training, as soon as it scented its prey, stand motionless like a statue, and then slowly crawl forward with a peculiar gait, and another kind of wolf rushing around, instead of at, a herd of deer, and driving them to a distant point, we should assuredly call these actions instinctive. Domestic instincts, as they may be called, are certainly far less fixed than natural instincts, but they have been acted on by far rigorous selection, and have been transmitted for an incomparably shorter period under less fixed conditions of life. How strongly these domestic instincts, habits, and dispositions are inherited, and how curiously they become mingled, 
as well shown when different breeds of dogs are crossed. Thus it is known that a cross with a bulldog has affected for many generations the courage and obstinacy of greyhounds, and a cross with a greyhound has given to a whole family of shepherd dogs a tendency to hunt hares. These domestic instincts, when thus tested by crossing, resemble natural instincts, which in a like manner become curiously blended together, and for a long period exhibit traces of the instincts of either parent. For example, Leroy describes a dog whose great-grandfather was a wolf, and this dog showed a trace of its wild parentage only in one way, by not coming in a straight line to his master when called. Domestic instincts are sometimes spoken of as actions which have become inherited solely from long-continued and compulsory habit, but this is not true. No one would ever have thought of teaching, or probably could have taught, the tumbler pigeon to tumble, an action which, as I have witnessed, is performed by young birds that have never seen a pigeon tumble. We may believe that some one pigeon showed a slight tendency to this strange habit, and that the long-continued selection of the best individuals in successive generations made tumblers what they are now. And near Glasgow there are house-tumblers, as I hear from Mr. Brent, which cannot fly eighteen inches high without going head over heels. It may be doubted whether any one would have thought of training a dog to point, had not some one dog naturally shown a tendency in this line, and this is known occasionally to happen as I once saw in a pure terrier. The act of pointing is probably, as many have thought, only the exaggerated pause of an animal preparing to spring on its prey. When the first tendency to point was once displayed, methodical selection and the inherited effects of compulsory training in each successive generation would soon complete the work, and unconscious selection is still in progress, as each man tries to procure without intending to improve the breed, dogs which stand and hunt best. On the other hand, habit alone in some cases has sufficed. Hardly any animal is more difficult to tame than the young of the wild rabbit. Scarcely any animal is tamer than the young of the tame rabbit. But I can hardly suppose that domestic rabbits have often been selected for tameness alone, so that we must attribute at least the greater part of the inherited change from extreme wildness to extreme tameness, to habit and long-continued close confinement. Natural instincts are lost under domestication. A remarkable instance of this is seen in the breeds of fowls, which very rarely or never became, quote, broody, end quote, that is, never wish to sit on their eggs. Familiarity alone prevents our seeing how largely and how permanently the minds of our domestic animals has been modified, it is scarcely possible to doubt that the love of man has become instinctive in the dog. All wolves, foxes, jackals, and species of the cat genus, when kept tame, are most eager to attack poultry, sheep, and pigs, and this tendency has been found incurable in dogs, which have been brought home as puppies from countries such as Tierra del Fuego and Australia, where the savages do not keep these domestic animals. How rarely, on the other hand, do our civilized dogs, even when quite young, require to be taught not to attack poultry, sheep, and pigs? No doubt they occasionally do make it, 
and this tendency has been found incurable in dogs which have been brought home as puppies from countries such as tierra del fuego and australia where the savages do not keep these domestic animals how rarely on the other hand do our civilized dogs even when quite young require to be taught not to attack poultry sheep and pigs no doubt they occasionally do make an attack and are then beaten and if not cured they are destroyed so that the habit and some degree of selection have probably concurred in civilizing by inheritance our dogs on the other hand young chickens have lost wholly by habit that fear of the dog which no doubt was originally instinctive in them for i am informed by captain hutton that the young chickens of the parent stock the gallus bankiva when reared in india under a hen are at first successively wild so it is with young pheasants reared in england under a hen it is not that chickens have lost all fear but fear only of dogs and cats for if the hen gives the danger chuckle they will run more especially young turkeys from under her and conceal themselves in the surrounding grass or thickets and this is evidently done for the instinctive purpose of allowing as we see in the wild ground birds their mother to fly away but this instinct retained by our chickens has become useless under domestication for the mother hen has almost lost by disuse the power of flight hence we may conclude that under domestication instincts have been acquired and natural instincts have been lost partly by habit and partly by man selecting and accumulating during successive generations peculiar mental habits and actions which at first from what we must in our ignorance call an accident in some cases compulsory habit alone has sufficed to produce inherited mental changes in other cases compulsory habit has done nothing and all has been the result of selection pursued both methodically and unconsciously but in most cases habit and selection have probably concurred special instincts we shall perhaps best understand how instincts in a state of nature have become modified by selection by considering a few cases i will select only three namely the instinct which leads the cuckoo to lay her nests in other birds nests the slave-making instinct of certain ants and the cell-making power of the hive-bee these two latter instincts have generally and justly been ranked by naturalists as the most wonderful of all known instincts instincts of the cuckoo it is supposed by some naturalists that the more immediate cause of the instincts of the cuckoo is that she lays her eggs not daily but at intervals of two or three days so that if she were to make her own nest and sit on her own eggs those first laid would have to be left for some time unincubated or there would be eggs and young birds of different ages in the same nest if this were the case the process of laying and hatching might be inconveniently long more especially as she migrates at a very early period and the first hatched young would probably have to be fed by the male alone but the american cuckoo is in this predicament for she makes her own nest and has eggs and young successively hatched all at the same time it has been both asserted and denied that the american cuckoo occasionally lays her eggs in other birds nests 
but I have lately heard from Dr. Merrill of Iowa that he once found in Illinois a young cuckoo together with a young jay in the nest of a blue jay, Garrulus cristatus, and as both were nearly full-feathered, there could be no mistake in their identification. I could also give several instances of various birds which have been known occasionally to lay their eggs in other birds' nests. Now let us suppose that the ancient progenitor of our European cuckoo had the habits of the American cuckoo, and that she occasionally laid an egg in another bird's nest. If the old bird profited by this occasional habit through being enabled to emigrate earlier, or through any other cause, or if the young male were made more vigorous by advantage being taken of the mistaken instinct of another species than when reared by their own mother, encumbered as she could hardly fail to be by having eggs and young of different ages at the same time, then the old birds or the fostered young would gain an advantage, and analogy would lead us to believe that the young thus reared would be apt to follow by inheritance the occasional and aberrant habit of their mother, and in their turn would be apt to lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and thus be more successful in rearing their young. By a continued process of this nature, I believe that the strange instinct of our cuckoo has been generated. It has also recently been ascertained, on sufficient evidence, by Adolf Mueller, that the cuckoo occasionally lays her eggs on the bare ground, sits on them, and feeds her young. This rare event is probably a case of reversion to the long-lost aboriginal instinct of nidification. It has been objected that I have not noticed other related instincts and adaptations of structure in the cuckoo, which are spoken of as necessarily co-ordinated. But in all cases, speculation on an instinct known to us only in a single species is useless, for we have hitherto had no facts to guide us. Until recently, the instincts of the European and of the non-parasitic American cuckoo alone were known. Now, owing to Mr. Ramsey's observations, we have learnt something about three Australian species, which lay their eggs in other birds' nests. The chief points to be referred to are three. First, that the common cuckoo, with rare exceptions, lays only one egg in a nest, so that the large and voracious young bird receives ample food. Secondly, that the eggs are remarkably small, not exceeding those of the skylark, a bird about one-fourth as large as the cuckoo. That the small size of the egg is a real case of adaptation, we may infer from the fact of the non-parasitic American cuckoo laying full-sized eggs. Thirdly, that the young cuckoo, soon after birth, has the instinct, the strength, and a properly shaped back for ejecting its foster brothers, which then perish from cold and hunger. This has been boldly called a beneficent arrangement, in order that the young cuckoo may get sufficient food, and that its foster brothers may perish before they had acquired much feeling. Turning now to the Australian species. Though these birds generally lay only one egg in a nest, it is not rare to find two and even three eggs in the same nest. In the bronze cuckoo, the eggs vary greatly in size, from eight to ten lines in length. Now, if it had been of an advantage to this species to have laid eggs even smaller than those now laid, 
so as to have deceived certain foster parents or as is more probable to have been hatched within a shorter period for it is asserted that there is a relationship between the size of eggs and the period of their incubation then there is no difficulty in believing that a race or species might have been formed which would have laid smaller and smaller eggs for these would have been more safely hatched and reared mr ramsay remarks that two of the australian cuckoos when they lay their eggs in an open nest manifest a decided preference for nests containing eggs similar in colour to their own the european species apparently manifests some tendency toward a similar instinct but not rarely departs from it as is shown by her laying her dull and pale-coloured eggs in the nest of the hedge warbler with bright greenish-blue eggs had our cuckoo invariably displayed the above instinct it would assuredly have been added to those which it is assumed must all have been acquired together the eggs of the australian bronze cuckoo vary according to mr ramsay to an extraordinary degree in colour so that in this respect as well as in size natural selection might have secured and fixed any advantageous variation in the case of the european cuckoo the offspring of the foster parents are commonly ejected from the nest within three days after the cuckoo is hatched and as the latter at this age is in a most helpless condition mr gould was formerly inclined to believe that the act of ejection was performed by the foster parents themselves but he has now received a trustworthy account of a young cuckoo which was actually seen while still blind and not able even to hold up its own head in the act of ejecting its foster brothers one of these was replaced in the nest by the observer and was again thrown out with respect to the means by which this strange and odious instinct was acquired if it were of great importance for the young cuckoo as is probably the case to receive as much food as possible soon after birth i can see no special difficulty in its having gradually acquired during successive generations the blind desire the strength and structure necessary for the work of ejection for those cuckoos which had such habits and structure best developed would be the most securely reared the first step towards the acquisition of the proper instinct might have been mere unintentional restlessness on the part of the young bird when somewhat advanced in age and strength the habit having been afterwards improved and transmitted to an earlier age i can see no more difficulty in this than in the unhatched young of other birds acquiring the instinct to break through their own shells or than in young snakes acquiring in their upper jaws as owen has remarked a transitory sharp tooth for cutting through the tough egg-shell for if each part is liable to individual variations at all ages and the variations tend to be inherited at a corresponding or earlier age propositions which cannot be disputed then the instincts and structure of the young could be slowly modified as surely as those of the adult and both cases must stand or fall together with the whole theory of natural selection some species of molothrus a widely distinct genus of american birds allied to our starlings have parasitic habits like those of the cuckoo and the species present an interesting gradation in the perfection of their instincts 
the sexes of Molothrus badius are stated by an excellent observer mr hudson sometimes to live promiscuously together in flocks and sometimes to pair they either build a nest of their own or seize on one belonging to some other bird occasionally throwing out the nestlings of the stranger they either lay their eggs in the nest thus appropriated or oddly enough build one for themselves on top of it they usually sit on their own eggs and rear their own young but mr hudson says it is probable that they are occasionally parasitic for he has seen the young of this species following old birds of a distinct kind and clamouring to be fed by them the parasitic habits of another species of molothrus the molothrus bonariensis are much more highly developed than those of the last but are still far from perfect this bird as far as it is known invariably lays its eggs in the nests of strangers but it is remarkable that several together sometimes commence to build an irregularly untidy nest of their own placed in singular ill-adapted situations as on the leaves of a large thistle they never however as far as mr hudson has ascertained complete a nest for themselves they often lay so many eggs from fifteen to twenty in the same foster nest that few or none can possibly be hatched they have moreover the extraordinary habit of pecking holes in the eggs whether of their own species or of their foster parents which they find in the appropriated nests they drop also many eggs on the bare ground which are thus wasted a third species the molothrus pecoris of north america has acquired instincts as perfect as those of the cuckoo for it never lays more than one egg in a foster nest so that the young bird is securely reared mr hudson is a strong disbeliever in evolution but he appears to have been so much struck by the imperfect instincts of the molothrus bonariensis that he quotes my words and asks quote, must we consider these habits not as especially endowed or created instincts but as small consequences of one general law namely transition various birds as has already been remarked occasionally lay their eggs in the nests of other birds this habit is not very uncommon with the galenici and throws some light on the singular instinct of the ostrich in this family several hen-birds unite and lay first a few eggs in one nest and then in another and these are hatched by the males this instinct may probably be accounted for by the fact of the hens laying a large number of eggs but as with the cuckoo at intervals of two or three days the instinct however of the american ostrich as in the case of the molothrus bonariensis has not as yet been perfected for a surprising number of eggs lie strewed over the plains so that in one day's hunting i picked up no less than twenty lost and wasted eggs many bees are parasitic and regularly lay their eggs in the nests of other kinds of bees this case is more remarkable than that of the cuckoo for these bees have not only had their instincts but their structure modified in accordance with their parasitic habits for they do not possess the pollen-collecting apparatus 
which would have been indispensable if they had stored up food for their own young, some species of sphagidae, wasp-like insects, are likewise parasitic, and M. Fabre has lately shown good reason for believing, although the Tachites nigra generally makes its own burrow and stores it with paralyzed prey for its own larvae, yet that, when this insect finds a burrow already made and stored by another sphex, it takes advantage of the prize, and becomes, for the occasion, parasitic. In this case, as with that of the Molothrus, or cuckoo, I can see no difficulty in natural selection making an occasional habit permanent, if of advantage to the species, and if the insect whose nest and stored food are feloniously appropriated be not thus exterminated slave-making instinct this remarkable instinct was first discovered in the formica polyurgis rufescens by pierre huber a better observer even than his celebrated father this ant is absolutely dependent on its slaves Without their aid, the species would certainly become extinct in a single year. The males and fertile females do no work of any kind, and the workers, or sterile females, though most energetic and courageous in capturing slaves, do no other work. They are incapable of making their own nests, or of feeding their own larvae. When the old nest is found inconvenient, and they have to migrate, it is the slaves which determine the migration, and actually carry their masters in their jaws. So utterly helpless are the masters, that when Huber shut up thirty of them without a slave, but with plenty of the food which they like best, and with their larvae and pupa to stimulate them to work, they did nothing. They could not even feed themselves, and many perished of hunger. Huber then introduced a single slave, F. Fusca, and she instantly set to work, fed, and saved the survivors, made some cells, and tended the larvae, and put all to rights. What can be more extraordinary than these well-ascertained facts? If we had not known of any other slave-making ant, it would have been hopeless to speculate how so wonderful an instinct could have been perfected. Another species, Formica sanguinee, was likewise first discovered by P. Huber to be a slave-making ant. This species is found in the southern parts of England, and its habits have been attended to by F. Smith of the British Museum, to whom I am much indebted for information on this and other subjects, although fully trusting to the statements of Huber and Mr. Smith. I tried to approach the subject in a sceptical frame of mind, as any one may well be excused for doubting the existence of so extraordinary an instinct as that of making slaves. Hence I will give the observations which I made in some little detail. I opened fourteen nests of F. sanguine, and found a few slaves in all. Male and fertile females of the slave species, F. fusca, are found only in their own proper communities and have never been observed in the nests of F. sanguine. The slaves are black, and not above half the size of their red masters, so that the contrast in their appearance is great. When the nest is slightly disturbed, the slaves occasionally come out, and, like their masters, 
are much agitated and defend the nest when the nest is much disturbed and the larva and pupa are exposed the slaves work energetically together with their masters in carrying them away to a place of safety hence it is clear that the slaves feel quite at home during the months of june and july on three successive years i watched for many hours several nests in surrey and sussex and never saw a slave either leave or enter a nest as during these months the slaves are very few in number i thought that they might behave differently when more numerous but mr smith informs me that he has watched the nests at various hours during may june and august both in surrey and hampshire and has never seen the slaves though present in large numbers in august either leave or enter the nest hence he considers them as strictly household slaves the masters on the other hand may be constantly seen bringing in materials for the nest and food of all kinds during the year eighteen sixty however in the month of july i came across a community with an unusually large stock of slaves and i observed a few slaves mingled with their masters leaving the nest and marching along the same road to a tall scotch fir tree twenty-five yards distant which they ascended together probably in search of aphides or coxi according to huber who had ample opportunities for observation the slaves in switzerland habitually work with their masters in making the nest and they alone opened and closed the doors in the morning and evening and as huber expressly states their principal office is to search for aphides this difference in the usual habits of the masters and slaves in the two countries probably depends merely on the slaves being captured in greater numbers in switzerland than in england one day i fortunately witnessed a migration of f sanguini from one nest to another and it was a most interesting spectacle to behold the masters carefully carrying their slaves in their jaws instead of being carried by them as in the case of f rufescens another day my attention was struck by about a score of the slave-makers haunting the same spot and evidently not in search of food they approached and were vigorously repulsed by an independent community of the slave species f fusca sometimes as many as three of these ants clinging to the legs of the slave-making f sanguini the latter ruthlessly killed their small opponents and carried their dead bodies as food to their nest twenty-nine yards distant but they were prevented from getting any pupa to rear as slaves i then dug up a small parcel of the pupa of f fusco from another nest and put them down on a bare spot near the place of combat they were eagerly seized and carried off by the tyrants perhaps fancy that after all they had been victorious in their late combat at the same time i laid on the same place a small parcel of the pupa of another species f flava with a few of these little yellow ants still clinging to the fragments of their nest this species is sometimes though rarely made into slaves as has been described by mr smith although so small a species it is very courageous and i have seen it ferociously attack other ants in one instance i found to my surprise an independent community of f flava 
under a stone beneath a nest of the slave-making f sanguine and when i had accidentally disturbed both nests the little ants attacked their big neighbors with surprising courage now i was curious to ascertain whether f sanguine could distinguish the pupa of f fusca which they habitually make into slaves from those of the little and furious f flava which they rarely capture and it was evident that they did at once distinguish them for we have seen that they eagerly and instantly seized the pupa of f fusca whereas they were much terrified when they came across the pupa or even the earth from the nest of f flava and quickly ran away but in about a quarter of an hour shortly after all the little yellow ants had crawled away they took heart and carried off the pupa one evening i visited another community of f sanguine and found a number of these ants returning home and entering their nests carrying the dead bodies of f fusca showing that it was not a migration and numerous pupa i traced a long file of ants burdened with booty for about forty yards back to a very thick clump of heath whence i saw the last individual of f sanguine emerge carrying a pupa but i was not able to find the desolated nest in the thick heath the nest however must have been close at hand for two or three individuals of f fusca were rushing about in the greatest agitation and one was perched motionless with its own pupa in its mouth on the top of a spray of heath an image of despair over its ravaged home such are the facts though they did not need confirmation by me in regard to the wonderful instinct of making slaves let it be observed what a contrast the instinctive habits of f sanguine present with those of the continental f rufescence the latter does not build its own nest does not determine its own migrations does not collect food for itself or its young and cannot even feed itself it is absolutely dependent on its numerous slaves formica sanguine on the other hand possesses much fewer slaves and in the early part of the summer extremely few the masters determine when and where a new nest shall be formed and when they migrate the masters carry the slaves both in switzerland and england the slaves seem to have the exclusive care of the larvae and the masters alone go on slave-making expeditions in switzerland the slaves and masters work together making and bringing materials for the nest both but chiefly the slaves tend and milk as it may be called their aphides and thus both collect food for the community in england the masters alone usually leave the nest to collect building materials and food for themselves their slaves and larvae so that the masters in this country receive much less service from their slaves than they do in switzerland by what steps the instinct of f sanguine originated i will not pretend to conjecture but as ants which are not slave-makers will as i have seen carry off pupa of other insects if scattered near their nests it is possible that such pupa originally stored as food might become developed and the foreign ants thus unintentionally reared would then follow their proper instincts and do what work they could if their presence proved useful to the species which had seized them if it were more advantageous to this species to capture workers than to procreate them the habit of collecting pupa 
originally for food, might, by natural selection, be strengthened and rendered permanent for the very different purpose of raising slaves. When the instinct was once acquired, if carried out to a much less extent even than in our British F. Sanguine, which, as we have seen, is less aided by its slaves than the same species in Switzerland, natural selection might increase and modify the instinct, always supposing each modification to be of use to the species, until an ant was formed as abjectly dependent on its slaves as is the Formica rufescens. Cell-making instinct of the hive bee I will not here enter on minute details on this subject, but will merely give an outline of the conclusions at which I have arrived. He must be a dull man who can examine the exquisite nature of a comb so beautifully adapted to its end, without enthusiastic admiration. We hear from mathematicians that bees have practically solved a recondent problem, and have made their cells the proper shape to hold the greatest possible of honey, with the least possible consumption of precious wax in their construction. It has been remarked that a skilful workman, with fitting tools and measures, would find it very difficult to make cells of wax of the true form, though this is effected by a crowd of bees working in a dark hive. Granting whatever instincts you please, it seems at first quite inconceivable how they can make all the necessary angles and planes, or even perceive when they are correctly made. But the difficulty is not nearly so great as it first appears. All this beautiful work can be shown, I think, to follow from a few simple instincts. I was led to investigate this subject by Mr. Waterhouse, who has shown that the form of the cell stands in close relation to the presence of adjoining cells, and the following view may, perhaps, be considered only as a modification of his theory. Let us look to the great principle of gradation, and see whether nature does not reveal to us her method of work. At one end of a short series, we have humble bees which use their old cocoons to hold honey, sometimes adding to them short tubes of wax, and likewise making separate and very irregular rounded cells of wax. At the other end of the series, we have the cells of the hive bee placed in a double layer, each cell, as is well known, is an hexagonal prism, with the basal edges of its six sides beveled, so as to join an inverted pyramid of three roms. These roms have certain angles, and the three which form the pyramidal base of a single cell on one side of the romb enter into the composition of the bases of three adjoining cells on the opposite side. In the series between the extreme perfection of the cells of the hive bee and the simplicity of those of the humble bee, we have the cells of the Mexican Melipona domestica, carefully described and figured by Pierre Huber. The Melipona itself is intermediate in structure between the hive and humble bee, but more nearly related to the latter. It forms a nearly regular waxen comb of cylindrical cells, in which the young are hatched, and, in addition, some large cells of wax for holding honey. These latter cells are nearly spherical, 
and of equal sizes, and are aggregated into an irregular mass. But the important point to notice is that these cells are always made at that degree of nearness to each other that they would have intersected or broken into each other if the spheres had been completed. But this is never permitted, the bees building perfectly flat walls of wax between the spheres, which thus tend to intersect. Hence, each cell consists of an outer spherical portion, and of two, three, or more flat surfaces, according as the cell adjoins two, three, or more other cells. When one cell rests on three other cells, which, from the spheres being nearly of the same size, is very frequently and necessarily the case, the three flat surfaces are united into a pyramid, and this pyramid, as Huber has remarked, is manifestly a gross imitation of the three-sided pyramidal base of the cell of the hive-bee. As in the cells of the hive-bee, so here, the three plane surfaces in any one cell necessarily enter into the construction of the three adjoining cells. It is obvious that the melopona saves wax, and what is more important, labor, by this manner of building, for the flat walls between the adjoining cells are not double, but are of the same thickness as the outer spherical portion, and yet each flat portion forms a part of two cells. Reflecting on this case, it occurred to me that if the melopona had made its spheres at some given distance from each other, and had made them of equal sizes and had arranged them symmetrically in a double layer, the resulting structure would have been as perfect as the comb of the hive-bee. Accordingly, I wrote to Professor Miller of Cambridge, and this geometer has kindly read over the following statement, drawn up from his information, and tells me that it is strictly correct. If a member of equal spheres be described, with their centers placed in two parallel layers, with the center of each sphere at the distance of radius times square root, or radius times 1.41421, or at some lesser distance, from the centers of the six surrounding spheres in the same layer, and at the same instance, from the centers of the adjoining spheres in the other and parallel layer, then, if planes of intersection between the several spheres in both layers be formed, there will result a double layer of hexagonal prisms united together by pyramidal bases formed of three rhombs, and the rhombs and the sides of the hexagonal prisms will have every angle identically the same with the best measurements which have been made of the cells of the hive-bee. But I hear from Professor Wyman, who has made numerous careful measurements, that the accuracy of the workmanship of the bee has been greatly exaggerated, so much so that whatever the typical form of the cell may be, it is rarely, if ever, realized. Hence, we may safely conclude that, if we could slightly modify the instincts already possessed by the melopona, and in themselves not very wonderful, this bee would make a structure as wonderfully perfect as that of the hive-bee, we must suppose the melopona to have the power of forming her cells truly spherical and of equal sizes, and this would not be very surprising, seeing that she already does so to a certain extent, and seeing what perfectly cylindrical burrows many insects make in wood, apparently by turning round on a fixed point. 
we must suppose the melipona to arrange her cells in level layers as she already does her cylindrical cells and we must further suppose and this is the greatest difficulty that she can somehow judge accurately at what distance to stand from her fellow labourers when several are making their spheres but she is already so far enabled to judge of distance that she always describes her spheres so as to intersect to a certain extent and then she unites the points of intersection by perfectly flat surfaces by such modification of instincts which in themselves are not very wonderful hardly more wonderful than those which guide a bird to make its nest i believe that the hive bee has acquired through natural selection her inimitable architectural powers this theory can be tested by experiment following the example of mr tegetmeyer i separated two combs and put between them a long thick rectangular strip of wax the bees instantly began to excavate minute circular pits in it and as they deepened these little pits they made them wider and wider until they were converted into shallow basins appearing to the eye perfectly true or parts of a sphere and of about the diameter of a cell it was most interesting to observe that wherever several bees had begun to excavate these basins near together they had begun their work at such a distance from each other that by the time the basins had acquired the above stated width that is about the width of an ordinary cell and were in depth about the one-sixth of the diameter of the sphere of which they formed a part the rims of the basins intersected or broke into each other as soon as this occurred the bees ceased to excavate and began to build up flat walls of wax on the lines of intersection between the basins so that each hexagonal prism was built upon the scalloped edge of a smooth basin instead of on the straight edges of a three-sided pyramid as in the case of ordinary cells i then put into the hive instead of a thick rectangular piece of wax a thin and narrow knife-edged ridge coloured with vermilion the bees instantly began on both sides to excavate little basins near to each other in the same way as before but the ridge of wax was so thin that the bottom of the basins if they had been excavated to the same depth as in the former experiment would have broken into each other from the opposite sides the bees however did not suffer this to happen and they stopped their excavations in due time so that the basins as soon as they had been a little deepened came to have flat bases and these flat bases formed by thin little plates of the vermilion wax left ungnawed were situated as far as the eye could judge exactly along the planes of imaginary intersection between the basins on the opposite side of the ridge of wax in some parts only small portions in other parts large portions of a rhombic plate were thus left between the opposed basins but the work from the unnatural state of things had not been neatly performed the bees must have worked at very nearly the same rate and circularly gnawing away and deepening the basins on both sides of the ridge of vermilion wax in order to have thus succeeded in leaving flat planes between the basins by stopping work at the planes of intersection considering how flexible thin wax is i do not see that there is any difficulty in the bees 
whilst at work on the two sides of a strip of wax, perceiving when they have gnawed the wax away to the proper thinness, and then stopping their work. In ordinary combs it has appeared to me that the bees do not always succeed in working at exactly the same rate from the opposite sides, for I have noticed half-completed rhombs at the base of a just-commenced cell, which were slightly concave on one side, where I suppose that the bees had excavated too quickly, and convex on the opposed side, where the bees had worked less quickly. In one well-marked instance, I put the comb back into the hive, and allowed the bees to go on working for a short time, and again examined the cell, and I found that the rhombic plate had been completed, and had become perfectly flat. It was absolutely impossible, from the extreme thinness of the little plate, that they could have effected this by gnawing away the convex side, and I suspect that the bees, in such cases, stand in the opposed cells, and push and bend the ductile and warm wax, which, as I have tried, is easily done, into its proper intermediate plane, and thus flatten it. From the experiment of the ridge of vermilion wax, we can see that, if the bees were to build for themselves a thin wall of wax, they could make their cells of the proper shape by standing at the proper distance from each other, by excavating at the same rate, and by endeavouring to make equal spherical hollows, but never allowing the spheres to break into each other. Now, bees, as may be clearly seen by examining the edge of a growing comb, do make a rough circumferential wall or rim all around the comb, and they gnaw this away from the opposite sides, always working circularly as they deepen each cell. They do not make the whole, three-sided pyramidal base of any one cell at the same time, but only that one rhombic plate which stands on the extreme growing margin, or the two plates, as the case may be, and they never complete the upper edges of the rhombic plate until the hexagonal walls are commenced. Some of these statements differ from those made by the justly celebrated Elder Huber, but I am convinced of their accuracy, and if I had space, I could show that they are conformable with my theory. End of chapter 8, part 1